like I don't I don't know whatever it was that's gone now, but it's I'm glad. Did it's you gone. see the show on Thursday? So I had actually. So here's the thing. When I tried to buy tickets for that show, it didn't let me buy them. It was saying it had been postponed. Next thing I know. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, that that happened to a, a previous show I was trying to see in D.C. as well. And then I I saw him like post on Instagram. Just be like, oh, yeah, I was here at like D.C. at Black Cat. And I was just kind of like those lying bastards. You. Oh, rude. You, you, rude. Son, of a bitch. you son of a bitch. <laughs> Yeah. Who, no. did you, who were you going to see? Sean James. Sean James. Oh, I guess he was going to see him twice because he's a dick. <laughs> uh, nope. I will only see it once if you uh, if I can get up to New York. Yeah, if you can get up to see me, that'll. Yeah. So I'll I'll get I'll get I'll make sure that I'm clear before I try heading up. I'll let you know by Thursday. Yeah, sounds good. In the meantime, sorry for the the side chatter, Jesse. Um, <laughs> um, but we can get started if you want. Okay, whenever you'd like to talk. All right, yeah. okay. Um, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dark Waters, a literary podcast focused on dark fiction and those who love to read and write it. I'm Nate, here as always with Kirsten. Hey. And I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Jesse Hilson. Hello. Jesse Hilson is a writer and comics artist living in the Catskills in New York State. His writing has appeared or will appear in Azure, Maudlin House, Pink Plastic House, Pulp Modern, Punk Noir, Misery Tours, and Expat Press, Murderous Ink Press, Orchid's Lantern, Zin Daily, and elsewhere. His comics have been published or will be published in Misery Tourism, Bear Creek Gazette, and Excuse Me Magazine. Uh, two books of his will be published in 2022, Blood Trip, which is the novel we're talking about today, um, From Close to the Bone, and Handcuffing the Venus to Milo, a poetry chapbook from the Sparrow's Trombone. That is quite the bio. Like, also, uh, handcuffing the Venus de Milo and the Sparrows trombone are both excellent names. <laughs> right. Um, I know the guy who, obviously, I know him because he accepted my chat book, but I've never asked him why the Sparrows trombone. I think it's supposed to be a surrealist image that doesn't quite, you know, gel or something like that. A sparrow yeah. with a trombone, it's just very surreal. I mean, also, so there's handcuffing the, the hand, handcuff. I can speak. I swear I can speak. <laughs> handcuffing the Venus de Milo also sounds kind of in that vein. So yeah, that would that would track. Um, yes. Is there? I also didn't realize you were a comics artist. How long have you been doing that? Well, I mean, I've been drawing for a long time, but um, it's really only in the past two years or so that I've been submitting things anywhere. I I. I like to think that I'm, you know, I'm a novelist, a poet, and a cartoonist. And I've been trying to kind of like cycle through those three mediums, media, um, over the past two years and submitting them places. So um, it's only, yeah, it's only been very recently that I've been really working on trying to get those out. Awesome. I think you'd also be the first. Uh, guest of ours that has uh that credential of, yeah um, i don't think we've we've interviewed another comics artist so that's, oh, really, that's awesome thank you yeah so jesse we'd like to hear a little bit more about blood trip in a little bit and the rest of your okay. work but first we want to get to know you a little bit better as a writer and as a reader um, okay so we got a few questions for you right so because this is what we do 
what do you normally classify under the header of dark fiction? Why do you love it? What are you specifically looking for when you're looking for a new book kind of in that genre or vein? Well, I was thinking about this question. Um, I think dark fiction, I would classify as something which has um, something pessimistic about it or something which really challenges the notion of hope in the reader, <laughs> you know? Um, and and from a certain perspective, a lot of literature is actually quite dark, you know? I mean, throughout history, there's been a lot of uh, death and uh, despair and dread, not like Bram Stoker, but, you know, um, yeah. So I think the, the genre of dark fiction can be really broadly looked at and also very narrowly looked at as, you know, I would think certainly crime fiction and horror fiction seem to be very dark, um, darkly oriented or darkly inflected, you know. So maybe to narrow my question, narrow the answer down, I would say crime fiction and horror fiction seem to be, seem to have the title of dark fiction the most, I guess. Fair enough. Yeah, I like your I like the idea of like hope. <laughs> Take away my hope, then you're dark. Uh, what was the last book you read that left you heartbroken in pieces, or had you keep all the lights on in the house for an indefinite period of time? Well, um, I haven't been reading as much as I used to read all the time, but I think the book that I would I would say made the biggest impact on me recently that I would call dark fiction is actually a, an out of print novel called Goddard or Goddard. Um, it, it was in print a few years ago. Um, the guy who wrote it, the, the supposed person who wrote it is named Rudolf Olofsson, but it's actually a pseudonym for a guy named Adam Johnson, who's a friend of mine that I met on Twitter. And he was talking about this book that he wrote. And I said, could you send me a manuscript of the, could you send me a copy of the book? I'd like to read it. And it was so dark. I mean, you talk about dark fiction. It was very, I don't want to give away the ending or give away things about it in case people want to read it. Cause I think they should, I think it should be in print, but imagine if a book went from a style of like Nabokov to Brett Easton Ellis to William Burroughs. Um, it's the story of a guy who uh, falls instantly in love with his son's fiance and is fascinated with her and is very caught up with her. And then he goes off the rails and it just the direction it goes, it's very, very bleak and uh, I actually read it and it and it it made such an impression on me that I wanted to it gave me delusions of grandeur that I could become a literary agent and try to get try to represent him and get the novel published and I told him like this might be one of my missions in life to make sure that this novel gets published of yours it's very very good it's very literary but it also is very very dark yeah, Sounds you... very like American Beauty esque, but darker. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Yes. 
when you mentioned Nabokov, I was just kind of like, that's a name I don't think I've ever, I've, I've heard in a very, very long time. <laughs> um, and it's Goddard, you said, G-O-D-D-A-R-D. G-O-D-D-A-R-D. He's on Twitter. I, it probably sounds like I'm plugging his book in an irrational way or something like that, but I really think it is very good. And it was a cool experience to actually read something by somebody who is from the kind of Twitter verse or, or Twitter indie lit world that I had corresponded with and then to read it and to see like that it was so amazing, you know? Um, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So what was the last book you read that left you with a positive impression on the world, kind of on the flip side of that? Right. Well, you just mentioned uh, Vladimir Nabokov. I, uh, I was thinking about this question. I'm a really big fan of his. And the last book that I read that gave me a sort of feeling of hope and a feeling of maybe some kind of aesthetic pleasure or positivity is a novel of his called The Gift, which uh, is one of his Russian novels. It's, I think it's the last it's the last, the last novel that he wrote in Russian and he wrote it when he was living in Berlin after he kind of after he left this what became the Soviet Union you know along with other white Russian emigres and uh, it's a really beautiful book that I've read a few times and it really clears away the cobwebs it's about a guy who's a poet who is sort of coming into his own and, and realizing his gift. That's the name of the book is The Gift. And he's realizing his um, his sort of uh, artistic potential. And he's also meeting the woman who will become his wife. So it's a love story too. It's very, very uplifting and very funny and very cerebral and poetic. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds very, that sounds like something I wasn't expecting from Nabokov, but again, again, the only thing I know from Nabokov is Lolita. And I know that, right. just, that, that that's, I think that's what most people know. So I, that would be a very interesting yes. sign of him to check out. Right. He wrote, Feels he like wrote, a very different, different book than that. Yes, <laughs> it is. He wrote a lot. He wrote quite a few novels and, and his Russian novels are interesting. And um, I, I don't read Russian. I read it in translation, but um yeah, Nabokov is really, he's notorious for Lolita. And, um, but he did, he did write a lot of other things in other shades, shadings. Some of them also quite dark too. Um, yeah, but that would be my book. I'm trying to think of another artist with that, or another writer with that level of we know you for this thing and this one thing only, and that's not really a good thing. Like anyone right. whose name like has like that kind of visceral reaction. Yes, right. Well, I sometimes look at you know maybe um, I can't think of a great example, but you know there are certain musicians or bands who are mainly known for one album or one kind of song, which has one kind of shading to it, but. They actually produced a lot of other stuff, which isn't as well known, which is a whole other universe. Right. And if you dig into the discography, you'll see they were doing all kinds of uh, 
different things. And I was kind of look at him a little bit that way too. Um, I'm a really big fan of his. I've read um, a lot of his books and, uh, it, you know, yeah. 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 I think the only authors that I would know that may provoke like a similar reaction are also Russians. I think it would be like Solzhenitsyn is the one that comes to mind where it's like everyone knows one day the life of Ivan Denisovich, but no yes. one really knows anything else aside from that. Right. Um, so yeah, I, that that'd be like my only guess. Right. Yeah. So you said that the um, Goddard made you potentially want to be a literary agent, but what made you decide to write and publish? Well, I've always wanted to be a writer since I was a little boy. Um, it sounds kind of goofy, but I was a really, really big Stephen King fan when I was a little kid and I first discovered Night Shift um, on my parents' bookshelf. And that was my sort of introduction. And I, if I were to look back through the hazy kind of time, time warp of my memory, I would, I think that was the writer that I read that I said, like, I would like to do something like this too, you know? Um, I could, I could see myself doing, writing a book. Um, uh, publishing, I've, I guess I've always wanted to publish too, but it hasn't, like I said, it hasn't really been a, a kind of tangible reality until just recently. And it's been exciting to kind of like see that someone would want to read it um, or someone would think it was a viable option, you know, something to read something to publish that's like i'm i'm sorry you you like my stuff no no you must be something's wrong with you i'm sorry yeah. like <laughs> no but like i know i i think i know more of you from um you've had stuff published in punk noir if i'm not much mistaken yes. correct, some of your poetry yeah i think that's where i first kind of came into contact with you is through punk oh, noir yeah. so yeah like it's good shit man glad you, glad you. you made the thing happen <laughs> Thanks. I feel like Twitter, I don't want to go on and on about Twitter, but Twitter has really been the thing which has made me able to realize the reality of being a writer that can, that gets some exposure and gets some eyeballs and people reading and people reacting and stuff like that. I, I don't want to like chalk it all up to Twitter, but if Twitter didn't exist or if social media, I guess maybe in a bigger picture didn't exist. I don't know if I would have found my way to this spot that I'm in and that I'm in right now with having a, a few books on deck to be published and et cetera, and to yeah. be published in literary journals. Yeah, I mean, no. absolutely. Like this show wouldn't exist. We would not be interviewing you right now if it exactly. were not for Twitter. Right. I don't think, yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, I don't, I know that I definitely wouldn't have ever gotten published anywhere without Twitter because it's, it's a fantastic place to hear about opportunities. So, yes, uh, right. it's, it's the one usefulness of this other what, like what someone else calls the hell platform. It's, it's the one yes. usefulness of that godforsaken tool. It is yeah. a hell platform and it is godforsaken. And there's so many soul sucking, soul denying things about, Twitter, but there are some positives too. Yeah. Exactly. I think my difference between like Twitter and other platforms is 
So like on Instagram and I don't really use Facebook anymore, but Instagram in particular, maybe a little bit of TikTok. It's just like, oh, look at all these people who are like doing the thing you like, but better. And Twitter's yeah. like, hey, look at all the thing people that are doing the thing you like, but better. But also you could maybe become that one day. Here's a link. Like yeah. that's the difference for me between Twitter uh -huh. and everything else. Everything sucks. Interacting on it sucks, but it's got, you got to take the good with the bad. Yeah, right. Yeah, but, uh, talk to us about a day in the life. So how do you divide your time between projects and how do you, how do you stay motivated if something gets stuck? I do not have much of a routine. I look at writers or I read about writers who talk about how they get up at five o'clock in the morning and write for two hours and then they go to work and work until five. I don't have any kind of structure and I look at the fact that I've written a few novels and I've written a bunch of things or drawn comics or, but I've been productive, but I don't know how it's happened. Uh, I just know that there comes a time where it, it does with extreme luck and extreme fortune come to pass that I do sit down and I spend time uh, working. Um, a day in the life recently, as like I was talking about with Twitter, I spend, probably too much time on Twitter looking up um, places to publish the world the world the the zeitgeist of literary Twitter whatever you want to call it um, when I am writing or when I am productive I do a lot of writing right when I wake up in the morning and I do it on my phone like I've the novel blood trip that I that is going to be published, maybe 60% of it was written on my phone and written in the wee hours of the morning and that kind of thing. Um, and I, I don't know how to describe the moment when I actually do, I'm able to commit and sit down. Mostly I'm laying down actually, because <laughs> I'm in bed um, and write that way, you know? No, absolutely. I think for me, I've we've had so many people on this show that are like, oh, and then I have to like get up, and then I have to take care of my kids, and I do this, and then I like go boxing, and then I do that and that, and I like put in eight hours a day, and I'm like, how? Yeah. How? Right. It's not like a like I absolutely believe them, and I'm just like in awe, and just like my brain does not work like that. So right. yeah, you're feel you definitely yeah. feel you right. you're just like amazed when there are suddenly words in front of you you're like i don't yeah. know how but cool right. i just Imagine. hope it doesn't go away you know mm -hmm. yeah um, one day i'll not be able to get back there and that's the kind of a fear you know mm -hmm. um, yeah it's you, you're always concerned when the magic's going to finally run out like it's it's been like some spell that's lasted you this long and then right one day the wizard that casts it just dies and the whole thing yes. runs out right <laughs> right so or the, or the vampire that that bit you dies and then your vampirism <laughs> dies with it or something you know? that was okay all right that also <laughs> works but that was not the turn i was expecting okay. <laughs> um yeah so when so one of my one of the next questions when you're working with an editor or editors um what sort of style do you prefer when someone is examining your work what types of feedback kind of work for you and what doesn't well 
I don't have. I was listening to other other episodes of your podcast and trying to kind of think about this question. I haven't had the experience and the connection with editors that a lot of people have, maybe at the point where they're publishing books and that kind of thing. Um, I have asked people who are friends of mine or maybe acquaintances of mine or people that I've met on Twitter again to look at my book or they've offered to look at my book. Um, the, the guy who put in the most input with Blood Trip and gave me the most editorial guidance is Gabriel Hart. I don't know if you know who he is, but we yeah, yeah we know Gabriel. You know, um, I asked him for a blurb, and he said, "Sure, I'll I'll blurb your book. Do you want me to look at it too?" And I was like, <laughs> "Sure." And then he looked at it, and he really looked at it. And to answer your question, he gave me a lot of editorial advice, which was very I don't want to say harsh. It wasn't harsh advice. It was just like you need to, you know, this is not over. So you wrote the book, so it's this many words long. You're nowhere near done with it. You know, you have a lot of work to do. So he actually recommended that I um, rewrite the book from scratch. Wow. Like go to a blank document in Word and just start writing it from Word 1 until the end. And I was like, are you kidding? I, th I was like, wow, that's pretty extreme. And he's like, trust me, you'll you'll thank yourself when you're done with it. Because um, he asked me, when did you first start working on this book? And I said, 2016. And he was like, you know, you've probably changed as a writer since then. So these changes that you've gone through over the past um, four or five years, you may not know it, but as you, if you go through the thing line by line, word by word, you're going to see things that don't work. And you're going to see things that need changing that you wouldn't see if you just incorporated changes to a Word document that already existed, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> um, so I think I respond to that because I really respect him and I really trust that he knows what he's talking about. Um, it also was something that I felt like I needed to hear in the sense that, like I said, I don't have a lot of experience with editors. And if I pay attention to my own like hypnosis, auto hypnosis, I will believe that I don't need to edit anything because <laughs> I'm like kind of, an arrogant bastard that way or something you know so i need somebody to go like no in fact you know this is really problematic and there's a lot of problems here and you need to do it so you need to you need to edit um i feel better when i'm writing than i do when i'm editing i don't like editing mm -hmm. um so if i could have a relationship with somebody who knows how to break through the resistance and the inertia that's a good relationship i think you know Got it. yeah for sure yeah i the i like the idea of starting from like a blank like just starting from a blank page because you already know the the general outline of the story and you just yeah. like go, like being able to put new words on the page like right from scratch is gonna give it much more flesh than trying to edit like what you already have like i like that idea 
So, and it worked very, very well. Yeah. Like, I have no idea what the, I have no idea what the first draft looked like, but the draft that you sent me was like, what, what you sent me was absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> so another, another aspect of it was he asked me what the deadline was and I told him that, you know, because the book was accepted um, in January of 2021, or yeah, maybe like on New Year's Day, pretty much. And the deadline that I was told to have the book submitted finally is November of 2021, the month we're in right now. And when I told Gabriel this, he's like, oh, you have all the time in the world, so you better... He said, treat, treat every book like it's the last book you're going to write, you know, because it could be, you know, conceivably this might be, you could pass away or something could happen. And, uh, but put the real effort into each book and don't, you know, um, wing it or something like that, you know. Yeah. Don't assume we're going to get another one. Yeah. So you've been published, you've had a successful career so far and are on track for more success, um, especially with the new books coming out. So as you're looking at the literary world and your influences, as you continue to gain notoriety, who would you want your work to be compared to? Um, this is a hard question. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's people I could say that I admire, that I like. Um, well, there's one writer in particular whose career I really admire. And if I could be compared to him, that would be something really special. Um, there's a guy named Bruce Wagner, who's a novelist. He lives in LA. He writes, or he writes pretty dark fiction but it's dark fiction that has like a, a redeeming kind of heart that's hidden away inside it he writes novels about hollywood and people on the fringes of hollywood that are trying to become famous or trying to become successful but it's just evading them and they're living lives that are really um sad and some some of the worst things i've ever heard happen to people happen in these novels um i guess i would like to kind of be seen in that and then i was also thinking not not in the world of fiction as much as the world of tv i was thinking of the show twin peaks because in terms of darkness, that show was really dark, but it managed to mold in all kinds of other moods and tones and sense of humor and um, significance and weirdness. And that would be the kind of thing that I would, I guess I would like to, if I'm, I'm sort of stumbling over my words, that would be the kind of thing that I would like to also kind of emulate or like to. Like um, that vibe. Yes. Um, the seriousness along with the oddness and the sense of humor and um, 
the reverberations that that show set off in people and in culture, you know, um, that would be something to kind of aspire to. I don't think I'll ever do that, but that's some that's sort of like a, a, a guiding light or something like that, you know? Sure. I don't know if it's necessarily like, I don't think it's as aspirational as you're making it out to be, but like, I get it where you're like, I want that kind of audience. I want that kind of aesthetic that uh, aesthetic's not the right word. Um, that like atmosphere to your work, that general feeling associated with it. Yeah. yeah. Something like an, something like an uneasiness, like kind of behind it all. Like the, I want to know more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah mystery i mean that show at the that show is a mystery is a mystery show par excellence in that it kept producing mysteries and that was actually the downfall of the show was it couldn't really give the answers to the mystery that was satisfactory or that that cohered with the question it couldn't give answers that went along with the question that it raised and that's why people think it kind of fell apart. And um, I think there's something about mystery fiction, which is maybe a subset of dark fiction because my mystery, yeah, is a subset of dark fiction, I suppose. That's really compelling and really interesting and draws the reader in, um, makes them excited to finally to turn the page to learn what's happening next um so yeah that's that's what i would say yeah i, I think one of the things about mysteries is that as human beings we're just kind of, we're kind of geared to to want to know more particularly if, if there's something that's unanswered right. and the way mystery stories set that up is that you're the whole thing is geared towards one question and every single story, every single aspect of the story has to kind of advance you towards an answer to that question. So it, it plays into that natural human sensibility of, I must know more. I must figure out what happened. Right. Um, so it's, it's something that I, I love. And I, I would definitely classify it under the header of dark fiction because often, I mean, what's the easiest, not the easiest, but the most common mystery is who killed who. Um, right, right. That's the biggest one. Yeah. So, so you have a section of uh, Blood Trip or some of your other work to read for us? Yeah. Yes. Um, give me a moment while I break. This um, is a chapter from Blood Trip uh, that is sort of maybe not halfway through the book, maybe a third of the way through the book. It is the chapter, well, I don't, to set it up, there's a family and there's a girl who's a college student who's away on spring break in Atlantic City. And she kind of doesn't want to be there. Or she doesn't fit in with her friends and she's sort of falling into the crosshairs of a guy that is already there. And at the same time this is happening, her father and her stepfather are for various reasons, which become clear in the book, um, coming to, to coming to Atlantic City to to rescue her, or so they think. 
The character's name is Julie. All right, we'll mute ourselves. Okay. Julie didn't want to smoke pot in the hotel room, so Ricky took Ginny and Julie six floors down and outside to find a secluded spot on the boardwalk to smoke. Julie didn't really want to, but something about how she was feeling that afternoon made her want to belong. She took one hand off the blunt, and within minutes, her thoughts all grew centipede legs and started crawling away from her. Ricky suggested they go gambling, the three of them. Ginny was all about it. Tropicana, Ricky said. Tropicana has the loosest slots. And the loosest sluts, Ginny put in. Julie gagged. She watched a movie of herself getting into a cab with the two of them. Ricky sat between Julie and Ginny. It was still light out, crowds everywhere. When they got in motion, Julie watched the buildings grow and recede in the window. She saw some guy walking on his hands, legs pointed up at the sky. The adrenaline wouldn't let her calm down as they went through traffic. She needed to trust the driver, but the marijuana wasn't allowing her to enter that space. She knew she was too uptight, and the knowledge was like a puzzle would be too exhausting to unravel. They could have walked on the boardwalk to the Tropicana, but that would have taken too long, Ricky assured them. Ricky was sitting in between Ginny and Julie, and he was not so secretly pressing his body against Julie's with maximum effort. She was crushed inside the inside of the taxi's door. When they got there, it was a big splash. All the palm trees throughout the courtyard outside. Julie felt herself floating as they got out of the cab and Ricky paid the driver. The alcohol was catching up with her. The inside of the casino was dizzying with noise and activity. The carpet was so busy and mind-bending it made Julie want to throw up. It was a mistake to come here after drinking at the bar and smoking. You needed to be able to think. Julie had to be walked through the casino like an old person, so Ricky took her arm. She had to be walked through everything. She had no idea what was going on. With a whoop, Ginny went straight for the slots and started putting in quarters. Ricky told them cell phones could interfere with slot machines. So he held this up to the side of the machine for a while as Ginny played, looking around as if he was breaking some rule. People milled around by the hundreds and their voices and laughter were like insects falling into sync with the gentle optimistic snippets of entrancing electronic music the slots let off every few seconds. The lighting was just above murky, like the inside of a dim movie theater before the lights go to black, Julie thought. Ricky took Julie's hand and led her to a nearby roulette table. The carpet was still in motion beneath her feet, even when she stopped walking. Ricky and Julie stood at the table watching the roulette wheel turn, and it made Julie gasp when the dealer sent the little white ball in the opposite direction. The ticking sound of the ball spinning around before falling to gravity to skip over all the spots on the wheel sounded very ancient. After watching one go around, Ricky bought $200 in chips from the dealer, gave half the chips to Julie. This alarmed her because it was such a wild display of money on her behalf. The stack of chips made a tense, rattling click when, Rich, when Ricky put them down in front of her. She was too stoned for this. A swarm of betting activity from the other three or four players standing there, hands reaching to place chips on the grid of numbers. Julie had only seen this in movies or on TV. The other players' chatter sounded either like overly happy Europeans or young lowlives from New York City. 
Ricky placed a bet on the number seven. He said it was his lucky number. He told Julie to put a chip at the corner of 34. He could have told her to do anything. She put a $10 chip where he said he smiled at her. The dealer spun the roulette wheel, telling players when to stop placing bets. He fired the ball in the opposite direction to the wheel's motion. This, again, hypnotized Julie. The suspense was an electricity Julie could feel crackling up from her toes to the top of her head. The number came up, 14, red. Ricky jumped up, punched the air. That's right, bitch, he said. And then he turned and hugged Julie. It seemed like he'd been rehearsing this gesture in his head for a while. What happened? She asked. You won, Ricky said. But the dealer, a little guy with a gray and goatee, used his little rake to collect Julie's $10 chip from the corner of the grid. Ricky exploded at the dealer. Wait, she put down a snake bet. No snake bets at this table. She don't even know what a snake bet is, a red, black, middle-aged man said, looking at Julie. Ricky argued with the dealer like it was second nature, like he was right at home. Everything's an argument to be won in Ricky's world. After several exchanges, Julie tugged down Ricky's arm to get him to stop. She couldn't bear it much longer. The dealer said, what are you, Steve Irwin? You see any snakes on this layout? Everyone stared at Ricky and Julie. Ricky made a display out of pinching the bridge of his nose in exasperation. He looked at her. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I should have, I should have checked before talking to that shitty bet. It's what, $10, Julie said. It's no big thing. She hated the way this was putting them on the same team. She grabbed at his chest to stay upright. I'm just trying to hold on. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Everything was moving so fast. Every event had its own stream. And it was rare that the streams came back together again. She dreaded what would happen is if you put down a bed straight up and then it hit, would they have to jump up and down and hug and make a show out of the fact that he just won $7,000? Like, would she be his girl then, some kind of Tropicana casino love logic? Ricky ended up winning $40 in little bets while Ginny materialized at the table proceeding to use Julie's chips to make what even Julie and her stupor knew were outrageous bets. Her last moment before blacking out, Ginny telling others around the table that she looked like Daenerys Targaryen. Julie awoke. She looked down and saw Ricky sitting on the edge of the bed talking on his phone. Tucked between his shoulder and his ear while he did something with his hands Julie couldn't see. One lamp on as well as the TV with one of those true crime investigation shows on. Police were being led through a forest to find a corpse, a reenactment. Julie's head bounced around the room. She stretched under covers until she sat bolt upright, feeling at herself to see if she were naked. She wasn't, not completely. Her shirt was on, but pants off. She was in her underwear. How had she gotten here? Last she remembered, she'd been in the Tropicana watching the roulette wheel spin and spin, people coming and going drinks. No one else was in the room with them. The, the clock read 634. Out the window, the sky was darkening with clouds. The balcony door was open. Julie could hear the surf below the traces of traffic, young women yelling on the boardwalk. Ricky was in a wife beater. He was just grunting into the phone. He sounded very sober. Nah. Nah, Dennis, I don't think so. No, never that. 
because he still owe me though, Dennis. Dennis, listen, I don't make the rules in this world. I just line up like everybody else. Julie didn't know what had happened or specifically how she had gotten into bed with Ricky. It was possible that something happened between them, but she knew that if it occurred, she had been lost to the world before, during, and after. Ricky stood up, started slowly panthering around the room. He just rolled a blunt, licked it to seal. She was terrified and just wanted him out. Her brain was starved of oxygen and water, like her brain was crying. She got up and caromed off the wall on her way to the bathroom. She threw up. She remained there on her knees for what seemed like a week, clinging to the toilet, still high. Ricky came to check in on her. She could smell the smoke from his weed, nauseating her more. Ricky narrated the situation to Dennis on the phone. Yeah, I'm with this girl right now. She puking. Not bad looking, maybe a seven. She's sweet. I took her to the trap. I could play Candyland with her. Me and her can have a, should have a tea party. No, upstate, I guess. You from upstate, right? He asked her. Who are you talking to? Julie asked, her voice a groan. Go back to bed, he said. You'll feel better there. Julie stood up in the bathroom mirror, screamed at her. Somewhere in the last few hours, she put her hair into a scrunchie and now that it moved around the orbit of her head to wind up on her forehead. She ripped it away from her head and threw it in the sink. She staggered out, of, out into the hotel room where Ricky was in front of a mirror, flexing and checking his abs, making sure they were still there. Okay, out, she said, one hand against the wall to steady her, one hand pointing toward the door. Ricky ignored her, kept pacing, talking to whoever was on the line. He went out onto the balcony to exhale the smoke he took in. Julie checked her phone. It still wasn't working. She looked around for her shorts, shuddering to think where they were, so she dug some jeans out of her suitcase and put them on in the bathroom. She didn't want him watching. She looked in the mirror again and did a full damage assessment. Horrible. She came back out. Ricky was on the balcony, posing like some kind of romantic leading man, looking out over the water. She thought of rushing over and sliding the glass door closed to lock him out. She hesitated too long. He came back in and closed the door behind himself. He put the half of his blunt that was left into a dish on the table by the balcony door. He slipped the phone into his shorts. His phone call was over. He was coming at her. I'm going to call the cops, she told him. No, you ain't. Or the front desk. She reached out for the room phone. There was no dial tone. What'd you do with the phone? A green wave of fear rose up inside her. He slipped past her. He positioned, he positioned himself in front of the door to the hallway. I'm not going anywhere, he said. Neither are you. It was at this moment Julie realized nothing sexual had happened while she was passed out. Something about the look in his eyes told her he still had that goal, still an outcome he sought for. He drew the line at raping unconscious girls. He looked down at guys who did such things. What a gentleman. And now that she was awake, he was going to force her. She could scream for help, but somehow she knew that no one would hear her through, the, through these walls. Ginny and Christy were probably passed out or dealing with their own similar problems, or most likely they'd gone out and left Julie to deal with Ricky on her own. She knew if she locked herself in the bathroom, he would never leave. She would have to come out eventually. She had had a few self-defense classes, but they seemed so distant, like memories of summer camp from elementary school age. 
She thought for a second or two and had a desperate intuition to change her angle, go with the flow. I feel really gross in here with you, Julie said, but I'm sure once I take a shower, I'll feel better. Can I join you? Ricky asked, not a trace of presumption in his voice. You want to take a shower with me? She was returning to the borderline flirtatious tone of voice she had used for a few seconds on the beach earlier with Ricky. Hells to the yeah. It was a gamble. Julie thought for a second before saying, maybe. I need to get a look at you first. Come in here. Ricky felt his prospects opening up. He came into the bathroom while she turned on the water, started the shower, testing it with her finger. Ricky had a rat-like grin on his face. Take off your shorts, she said. Only if you get down on your knees and take them off me. She thought about her options. He stood there in the bathroom between her and the door. She was completely blocked off, vulnerable to his attack and control. She went, up, she went onto her knees in front of him. Looking up at him, he seemed like an awful statue with bulging eyes. She reached up to grab his waistband and began to pull it down. The bathroom began to fill with steam as the hot water came online. She didn't look at his crotch at all as much as he wanted her to. She didn't pull down his underwear, not yet. Once the shorts were bunched up around his ankles, he lifted one leg to allow her to free his foot, then lifted the other leg to free the shorts completely. And once they were free and he was still up on one leg is when she lunged upward, bring her knee up into his crotch with the entire coiled energy of her soccer player's body. The good old reliable crotch shot that drove him backwards out of the bathroom. Ricky collapsed onto the floor in a fetal position, gasping. Her hands shaking, Julie slammed the bathroom door, hitting Ricky's head and locked it. She looked through Ricky's shorts for the phone. It was a Motorola flip phone. Thank God, no passcode. The first person that came to mind to call was Alan. She seized on the number from her memory and dialed. Alan picked up and Julie started talking. Ricky's voice outside the bathroom door at first sounded very soft and rational. Yeah, you got me good, Julie. I ain't never going to be able to have kids. But I'm going to pay you back for that. You just got a ticket to the emergency room. You better get out of here, Ricky, Julie shouted. He's coming to get me. Who? My stepfather. Your stepfather, Ricky laughed. What's he like, 50 years old? I'm going to knock out all his teeth when he get here. What you know about that? Julie could hear him getting to his feet outside the bathroom door. Just get out of here. Without my phone, you must be tripping, bitch. He didn't leave. After the pain went mostly away, he calmed down and settled in for the long wait. He finished his blunt in his underwear, thinking of all the things he was going to do to Julie and her bitch-ass stepfather. At the very least, he would black both Julie's eyes. He went back out onto the balcony to smoke the end of the blunt. He tossed it over the side into the abyss. He watched TV. He got very thirsty, and finding nothing in the hotel room to drink, he asked Julie through the door if he could at least get a drink of water from the bathroom. Go get some ice and melt it, she said to the door. He punched the door. Give me my phone back. Just then, there was a knock on the hotel room door from the hallway. Showtime. He opened the door, standing there in his briefs like what? All attitude, all South Jersey coming through loud and clear through him. A man with a red beard and glasses rushed inside and shoved Ricky back, back, back towards the balcony, out the balcony door, pushing Ricky's chest with his momentum. So he flipped over the balcony, 
railing into the evening air. Ricky clung to the railing in his underwear, both hands and both calves. It was six stories down to the pool. Ricky knew if he fell, he would miss the pool and hit the concrete. Ricky looked away from the chasm beneath him, up at the man holding him just inches away from death. His stepfather bellowed, where's Julie, you insect? Ricky knew he was about to die. She's in there, in the bathroom. The bathroom, I didn't touch her, I swear. The stepfather looked back over his shoulder and growled, the bathroom, to another man who would come in afterwards. There was a knock on the bathroom door, and Ricky heard Julie's terrified voice saying, Dad, Dad, to the second man. Clearly, it was an emotional reunion, and Ricky, dangling upside down like a treed cat, knew he was clearly fucked. He started spitting out any game he could. It was a misunderstanding. It was a mistake. He was in the wrong room. But he paid them something. Stop talking. I don't want to hear your voice, the stepfather of the beard said to Ricky. No one had ever scared Ricky like this guy. Julie's dad would be bad enough, but the stepfather holding him over a balcony railing seemed like a stone-cold killer. Excellent. Excellent. I like like the way that it you, there's there's this entire sense of menace that's kind of going through like the the section that you read like up at, like almost throughout the entirety of like the section that's marked um, as Julie, yeah. And the way it shifts like right at the end was perfect. Like the way that she actually like kind of takes back some degree of safety for herself and like locks herself in the bathroom, um, like that was very very well done. I also like the fact that it kept the action going like with the stepfather bursting in the way that he did that was actually a little bit unexpected. So it was excellent. Thank you very much for reading that. Yeah. Thank you. I I think my favorite line might be like, Oh, he was a gentleman because he didn't rape her while she was unconscious. Swoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That character. um, Sets him up pretty well. Yeah. Certified scumbag. Yeah. Um, But so we, so kind of one of the questions I have about this is that the plot of the book starts in a much different place from a lot of stories that I've encountered. And it's, it's Julie's dad, Mike, enlisting the help of a hitman to help kill his ex-wife's current husband, uh, the stepfather. And like, it gets even more twisted from there. Um, but, one, but one of the things that helps the story appear so twisted is that you've got multiple perspectives. Like the main character, Mike is first person, first person narration and then you've got several other characters where it's all like limited third person narration um why'd you kind of choose to use this and like how did you kind of go about incorporating it all into a cohesive story well i hope it's cohesive um i know i've read and heard people say things like you should if you're going to have multiple points of view in a novel you should limit them to maybe two or three something like that which I can understand the reasoning behind saying that. I just didn't do that. I mean, I had more characters. Um, I suppose, you know, going back to the thing about TV and movies and stuff, there's, especially in TV series, there's a lot of jumping between characters and fleshing out different characters' perspectives and what they're doing um, that, I wanted to kind of replicate. And I also wanted to 
there's certain as the certain points in the story which I don't want to give away or whatever, but where it depends on you jumping from point of view to point of view, and um, I hoped it was trying to, or my attempt was to maybe try to build suspense by limiting how much you're seeing of character A, jumping to character B, revealing something about the fate of character A while talking to character B and then jumping back to character A so that you didn't know um, what was coming next. Um, and it hopefully created some suspense and some twisting, you know? Um, yeah. So kind of one of the other questions that would kind of follow from that is, did you necessarily want it to be where you where certain characters knew things about others, but it wasn't exactly like the reader couldn't ex exactly guess who knew what at what time, I guess that would kind of be one of, that'd be one of the ways that would be a, that'd be one of the ways of amping up the suspense. And that, like, right. that was something that I'd be kind of curious about. Did you intend for that to happen or? Well, um, it's funny. Another, another term that people use when they're talking about writing is, plotting versus pantsing um the first whole chunk of the novel was just pantsing you know um yeah. and i didn't think a lot about where it was going i just had characters progress and thought about how they were gonna um go onwards and then once it got to a certain point i had to whip out the plotting instruments and um, try to make it uh, cohere that way. Um, characters knowing, I mean, that's that's a good like sort of aspect of certain mystery stories is you know that this character knows all, but this character doesn't know anything, but they're being kind of led into something like the character of Alan doesn't know what his ultimate fate is and he's being very trusting um but mike kind of knows what the whole or he thinks he knows what the whole angle is going to be what the shot is going to be and reading it as the reader you got you hopefully kind of see um that disparity of knowledge that one character knows so much more than the other one does and uh also, that's to kind of help develop character and, you know, sometimes the character that knows the most is the most evil because um, they have the drop on all the other characters. Um, I just want to say one thing, um, which I've been kind of struggling with with this novel. I'm very proud of the novel. I'm happy about it. I'm looking forward to it getting published. But I'm a little worried <laughs> that people that know me are going to read it and be shocked. Um, I, heard somebody on, I heard somebody on Twitter say, who was an author, she, she was publishing a book and she said, I want everybody to buy my book, but I don't want anybody that I know to read it or talk to me about it. <laughs> oh man, I feel that. Um, oh, that's so funny. Um, 
I am divorced. I have a daughter. I am actually on very, very, very good terms with my ex-wife and her new husband. And I fret a little bit about what people are going to think if they read this novel and think that it's some kind of like representation of, you know, how I feel about divorce or about other people. Um, I'm sort of hope, hoping that the fact that my ex-wife and her new husband are very big mystery fans and fans of crime fiction that they'll kind of get the um, get the flavor and understand that this is just fiction, you know. Um, maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking about it too much and worrying about it too much. I've often thought of how you know Agatha Christie never killed anybody, but she must have thought about killing people all the time, you know. Yeah. Literally all the time. <laughs> all the time <laughs> i mean a lot maybe not all the time but very very often and and she must and you know other mystery writers i guess this is my first novel so i'm not used to the notion that people are going to read this and wonder where my head is at where i'm coming from especially people in my family i i want my family to understand like my parents and my brother-in-law I have a feeling that they're going to read this and be like, what are you trying to say with this? So, yeah, I, I sort of, if my, if I could wave a magic wand, I would have people buy the book, but nobody that I know um, talk to me about it or <laughs> read it. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I had this moment. I feel you on like a spiritual level. So my, <laughs> I have a book coming out in May right. and my dad through my mom, was like, can I read it? I get it. Because you're just like, I don't want like the people who are closest to me. Like, I don't know if I want you to know what's going on up in my head. Like, I'm right. okay. But like the ideas that right. are churned. Yeah, I, I had a similar thing happen with my mother. Um, I So one of the stories I recently got published, she, uh, she was saying like, oh, like, yeah, I didn't know that you got another one published. And I was just kind of like, yeah. And she's like, well, what happens like, like, what's this one about? And I'm just kind of like, well, it's about like this corrupt stockbroker who ends up getting killed. And it's just kind of like every single story you write where it's like every everyone either dies or gets seriously injured. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, yeah. should, I be, should, should I be concerned? And I'm like, no, mom, you should not be concerned right. at all. <laughs> like, it's, 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 there's, I think one of our previous guests, and I don't know if she was quoting someone else or, because it was uh, Cynthia Paleo. Um, mm. She said something along the lines of, write as if everyone you know is dead. Mm. Um, and I love that line because it's something that just kind of kills all the shame um, yeah. and mutes all like the, the idea of someone I know is going to read this. Because the thing of it is, is that the you're trying ultimately to get to something that's true and if the way that you get to true things is through really twisted and dark stories, then that's the way you do it. Um, and you kind of have to, I guess the way that, I guess the way to approach, like the way I approach it is kind of like, they have to kind of trust that like, when you say you're okay, you, you actually mean you're okay. Yeah. Um, and if they don't believe you, then that's, then that's their problem. Uh, but I understand, I understand the, 
the concern. Um, yeah. Also, I think it's getting over that notion of like, I think for like specific people that you know or like specific family members, or whatever, just being like, it's not that I don't want you to read this book. It's like this book is not for you. This story mm-hmm. is not for you. It's for mm-hmm. a different audience that does not include you. So if right. you don't like it, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't, you weren't, it's not that if you like it, great. If not, that's okay too. Like you're not my target demographic mm-hmm. for this. Right. So yeah. it's like there's there's some authors where like they dedicate a book to someone and I'm, and I always wonder, it's like, did you actually mean for them to read this? <laughs> Is this something that they would really enjoy or is, are they just people that have supported you the entire way? Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's a weird kind of dichotomy sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can understand your concern. I, I'm, I'm so, glad you wrote it despite the fear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a quote. There's an interesting quote. I don't, I'm probably going to butcher his name. He's a Polish writer. His name might be something like Czeslaw Milosz. And he said something like, as soon as, a fa- as soon as a writer is born into a family, the family is over. <laughs> Meaning you, you as family are going to probably show up in the writing and be like possibly destroyed by, I mean, because the writer is going to be writing about their lives and their um, experiences and what makes them tick and the family is sort of defenseless against the writer if the writer is being brutally honest or um, that kind of thing. I don't want to destroy my family by any means um, yeah. or yeah. even do really any harm to them <laughs> but you're right that the writer has to kind of like be pledge allegiance to their own flag um, and hope, yeah, like, like, and hope that people just understand this is not this is fiction it's not about you it's not really about me even though i wrote it you know mm-hmm. um yeah. or variations of that theme you know yeah i think it's also funny too when you've worked on something for so long like you have names right like you have names in books you have names in stories you have names whatever and you eventually are going to meet somebody with those names. You're mm. like, so I unintentionally killed you in a really brutal way in one of my books, but like, sorry, we met after the draft. Like, right. Like, right. right. I had an ex-girlfriend read a mystery novel of mine and she was really pissed because she was like, is this me? And I said, no, I wrote this before I met you. So it's not you. But she was sort of like looking for herself in the characters of the book not this book in a different book and i think there are some people that can kind of like unclench and let go and there are other people that want to know where they are in your creation you know maybe yeah i uh i i had a one of the novels i'm working on currently and in, in the early early draft um i had a character that that had the saint that had like a similar name to I think it was her middle name. It was someone that I was dating at the time. And she was just kind of like, she talked like she'd write kind of the draft. She was talking about me about some like plot points. And I said, like, I don't want to do that necessarily. Like she wanted to like 
change part of a plot or like have one character get romantically involved with another one. I was just kind of like, I'm not too keen on that. And it's just kind mm. of like, like, and I said, basically it's like, you know, I based that character on you. And she looked me dead in the eye and said, <laughs> no shit. And I was like, I clearly need to change some things because that should not be happening. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's, I, it's, it's weird how like real life shows up in, in your work, even if you don't mean it to like, I'm a, I'm a relentless, relentless thief from my own life. So caution to all my friends and family, yeah. uh, you do something embarrassing. I will remember it and it will yeah. get put in print eventually. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. it's even if you don't intend to like real life just shows up. Well, I mean, I say, and I stand by this statement that, you know, I'm not writing a novel about a guy who wants to kill his ex-wife's new husband but at the same time part of what I guess I was trying to do with the book is touch on feelings that I had that were extrapolated to a point of of someone committing a crime Mm -hmm. and I think that might be a kind of angle that quite a few crime writers have where they would never commit a crime but they uh, want to have insight into emotions like in this case uh, jealousy I think jealousy is, in my worldview or in my book, the absolute worst human emotion. And if there is a hell, for me, it would be just feeling unending uh, feelings of jealousy. And um, so the book kind of is an exorcism of that, if you want to be pretentious about it. but there has to be something of the of the writer in the story. It's just a question of, you know, how much. So I'm, I guess I'm going to have to. I, I might. I may have to be answering a lot of questions when the book comes out. I'm trying to kind of prepare people a little bit in my family for you know this is a crime novel. It's not people behaving nicely towards each other, and it's not about good people. You can kind of frame it as like, there, I haven't necessarily been, like, this isn't directly related to my life, but it's an, I have been exposed to these ideas and have taken my own life experience and amplified it, right? So, like, I write, as Nathan lovingly calls it, romantic horror, um, which has a lot of couples killing each other. (laughs) And I have never been in a relationship or dated anybody who's like, I will die if you leave me. But like, that's a concept I think we're all like aware yeah. of, like that emotional right. manipulation. So like, right. have I ever been in that toxic of a relationship? No. Have I been in a toxic relationship? Sure. Like, mm-hmm. you, it doesn't necessarily have to be about you to be like, this is an exaggeration yeah. of things, right? And that mm-hmm. can be a way to frame it, maybe. Right. The reality of the story is a heightened reality that, yeah. Um, yes, I think you're right. One of the parts of the story that was incredibly fascinating was the twist in the middle when all of the reader's attention is focused on Julie and then it shifts to Wendy. So how long did it take you to kind of craft and set up that shift in tension? Like kind of what was your process of getting that to be like, Yes, this is brilliant and will destroy people. Um, again, the first 
chunk of the book was written without a, a structure in mind, particularly. It was just, what would I want to see happen next? What would make me turn the page, you know? And what kind of leaps would be intriguing to a reader, a potential reader, you know? I thought it is eventually gonna, there's gonna be an eventual need for the mother character to develop or to show up because in some ways she is like um, somebody that all the other characters are apprehensive about. And it, it's their opinion and their sense of justice that's gonna have to be on the scene or something, you know? Um, but, and I also started thinking like, it would be nice to kind of expand the cast of characters out a little more and have them deal with the implications of the situation. Um, I didn't think of it as a twist as much as a just, like it's, it sort of seems like if you're sticking with one plot line and you're just kind of sticking with it, you're sort of limiting the air that the reader can breathe. And then if you jump to another, other plot line you're letting the reader kind of like take a gasp of air to kind of like reorient and and have a refreshing um moment in time or something like that i don't know yeah no 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 totally get it it's kind of like um have you ever seen lee miz i haven't i'm sorry oh it's okay um basically the tension in that show is and then it just stays high for the entire show like there's no moment where the audience can just be like recover like breathe there's so there's so much sad and drama and sad and drama and sad drama that's it for the entire show and you're just Uh like left tired like i was tired i saw like and this wasn't like my favorite musical or anything but i saw it live and was just like three quarters of the way through the first act was just like i i need a nap like, yeah. this is too much right. so yeah i get it like in terms of wanting to give your audience that kind of like emotional space to be like let me like get a glass of water go to the bathroom right. get a comfort snack and then keep going right right yeah i think also what ends up happening is because you give them that kind of that breath of fresh air it also allows you to like it, it expands the story it gives you another route through which to like expand the world that you've built mm-hmm. um so it's that much it's that much richer um because you like you're not like focusing on one thing it, it can get incredibly myopic as opposed yeah. to something where like because you've like shifted the focus and like shifted the tension um you've now like expanded out the op like the op I was going to say the operating environment, but that is incredibly stupid. Um, I know what you mean. I thought you were yeah, yeah. expand the optics, but you know, yeah, that too. Um, but yeah, like it's expanding, expanding the the lens through which you're seeing the world. Um, mm. That was the right way of saying that. Um, mm. But yeah, and it's it works incredibly, incredibly well. So I, I I'm grateful you did that because like I, I I kind of get what you were saying is that like it gives them a chance to breathe, and that's kind of the same sense I got when I was reading it. Is that like okay, like I could stop here if I wanted to like get a like get like a little bit of a like get a little bit of a breather and then dive back in. But like also is that 
as soon as that happened, I just wanted to blaze the end and figure out what the hell is going to happen next. Right. It is a relief and it is a breath of fresh air, but in another way, it kind of isn't because it's just sort of showing another angle on the car crash, you know, um, which is happening, which is going to happen and you can't stop it, but you're just getting another point of view or perspective on the disaster. So it's kind of a relief, but it's also like hopefully amps up the stakes or the fear quotient or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I think the way that you've done it is that there's there's always someone that's kind of in danger, and that is an excellent way to get people to keep turning the page, um, even if even if you don't have a full sense of the person at the time that like the danger kind of commences, you have a you have enough of an idea that you care about whether or not they get hurt. And right. the, that's enough to keep someone going. It was enough to keep me going. At least I think it was very, very well done. Thank you. In some ways, the, some of the pulp novels that I've read have been kind of rough around <laughs> the edges and one of the sort of characteristics of pulp fiction is that it was written in a hurry to try to make money, <laughs> you know, or it was written. And I wanted to kind of like emulate that, that ethos. So it's a new, it's a new thing to me and it's a new thing to me to think about how to publish a book and how to. Absolutely. And I think it's also like, you could have that ethos of like writing something quickly and having that kind of like flashy in your face kind of style of writing, but still want it to come across as like more polished and like I actually put thought right. into this and like yeah, I do care that the plot holes are solved and that the grammar is correct and right of course you can yeah it's finding the balance between those two ideas right I there's other things I want to write obviously there's other books I want to write and I feel like this might be a good um, first stab at it all first first book to publish. Um, I have other things I'm working on, which might not really have a ton in common with this book. There's one thing I wanted to talk about. I don't know if this is where your questioning would go, but I wanted to talk about the subject of genre because I kind of started on Twitter when I started to kind of like try to push my writing, thinking of myself as a crime a crime writer, a crime fiction writer. And I know that a lot of what you, or maybe you would characterize this differently, but you have a lot of dealings with crime fiction writers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I I still want to write crime, but I also kind of see that there's certain things about the crime genre that I don't, know if I can do like for example this is just a specific example a lot of crime fiction writers spend a lot of time researching the police (laughs) because if you write it if you write a crime novel and the police don't seem real or, or they're doing things that are not realistic you might have people writing you letters or emails saying this was really unrealistic and no cop would ever do that. And so there's a, there's a, there's a framework and a formula quality to 
uh, writing, for example, a police procedural, you need to do quite a bit of research about the police. And I haven't. So that is a thing that is really going to make me question what I'm, what I'm doing if I write another uh, crime novel. I also feel like because I've been published, I've tried to get published at crime fiction journals and it hasn't really been successful, but I've been more successful in getting published at what might be called the outsider um, transgressive section of uh, Twitter lit. And I'm having more success in that. And that has made me think about like, uh, this is another thing that Gabriel Hart said in a really interesting interview a little while ago, that there's a whole group of people who feel like um, genre refugees. Like they don't fit into the genre and they're kind of like breaking into something else, you know? I hate that phrasing, but I totally get what he means. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting though. Genre outcasts or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know how, I'm not going to speak for him what he exactly meant, but I think for me, I feel like, um, I don't know how much I can fit into the formula. And it's not because I don't want to, it's just because I feel like I don't know if I'm able to, or maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe just write what you like and write what you feel is inside you and worry about the genrefication later. Um, Well, I think being able to is also like, it's, wanting to it's being able to like say the story you want to say while fitting into that mold and that sometimes doesn't mesh because like I feel like anybody could write anything right like if you made me sit down and we're like you're gonna write a hard-hitting sci-fi novel and like make your own language I could probably do it eventually it would just suck right (laughs) so whether or not it's not necessarily can you is like is that where your voice is is that where your artistic like vision goes Mm. to be super wanky about it but yeah I think that there is something to be said about there are kind of confines to certain genres so finding where you fit can be very difficult yeah I I think also at least from my perspective is that in so many ways genre is they're all artificial and it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of it it's kind of wonky in, in how I see it, but it's always that the the crime novels I love most, like there are elements of like horror to them or there are elements of quote unquote literary fiction or there are elements of romance to them um, right. where the, the concept of throwing things and saying this is one genre and it is only that and that is it, it just seems like complete bunk to me Mm. because (sighs) I think there are a couple I want to be fair I think there are a couple of genres that do have rules and Mm -hmm. they're very clear rules romance like especially if you're going to be in like the chiclet harlequin romance has to be happy ending no one can cheat Mm -hmm. and they get married at the end like that's happy ending no one cheats have to happen YA main characters have to survive main character gets the love interest, right? Like those have to happen. 
unless it's like a YA where it's like not really relationship based, but I don't know a lot of ways that aren't relationship based, but in the end, happy ending is again, baseline. Yeah, and I think police procedure, pr police procedurals kind of follow into that line as well. You have to make it make sense within the confines of the decade, within the time period, within the police force that you've had, you can't just have, there have to be like some consequences for your actions that fit within the world that you're operating in because they are more real world based. Now, if you want to do a police procedural set in the weird sci-fi era, then like go forth <laughs> and make your own rules. But like, right. I, I think there are like, I think Nathan, you're right in that re some of my favorite books as well are like they're horror mixed with thriller, mixed with romance, mixed with blah, 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 blah. But if you are just looking at that very narrow, like I am going to sell this book as this thing, there, sometimes there are rules and sometimes you want to break those rules, but you can't call a spade yeah. a spade if it's a spade cross with the club. I, yeah. Yes, yes. I also think that this, this hesitancy to embrace genre or to figure out where you fit in with the genre, maybe I'm wrong about this, but partially I think that some of it has to do with the fact that I don't have an agent. I want to have an agent, but... Um, I have this strange, maybe unfair kind of uh, vision of the literary, of the industry that when you get an agent, then there, because I was, I tried to get an agent with a mystery novel and I did one of those pit mad, you know, things on Twitter and I didn't get a lot of bites on it, but I started thinking um, of a series of mystery novels with the same detective. And the novel Blood Trip kind of came out of that. And the detective character in that was actually originally a man that was going to be in these other novels. And I started thinking, again, knowing nothing about agents, like what if I get an agent and they're like, okay, you're just going to be writing mystery novels now. You can't write anything else because you're like, they're going to tell me or something that you have to, you have to, be a formula writer or something you know? yeah, it's, yeah it's like, it's, it's like as soon as you get the representation they're gonna try to put you into a cage um yeah, yeah I can, i'm sure that's not 100 true but i think there is a little bit of a fear that because i would like to write i would like to write a romance novel one day you know or a sci-fi novel um i'm writing a spy novel right now which sort of is dark in the sense that it's a it's violent and um, about espionage and people living in the shadows and darkness, you know, darkness on that level. Um, I think a common misconception with literary agents is that that agent represents you for your entire career and they don't, they represent you for one book unless right. you've signed a contract with them of like, this is going to be a series and then they can represent you for that series, right. but you can have an agent for your mystery book and then get another agent for your romance book if your mystery agent, uh, if your mystery book agent doesn't want the romance. Mm. So there, I think there is some fear of like, I'm not sure how they're going to sell my book. I don't want this, like, especially because how they sell it will affect how it's edited, which will affect how it looks mm. in the end. And if you are pigeonholed, right? But I wouldn't necessarily be afraid of getting an agent because of some a book project you might want to do long term, because. Mm you can find other representation or find another press or find whatever usually in those contracts you're not obliged beyond whatever that current project mm -hmm. is right and that's something i had to learn through my own 
process of, of like submitting stuff, right? Like that's not something that they teach you. Right? Mm-hmm. Like that's something you just kind of have to figure out. Um, but yeah, I think that there are quite a few people who are like, I wrote an action. Now I wrote this thing. My agent has no idea how to market this one. Like I need to find somebody else. So like, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a common problem. Right. Unless you're someone like Stephen King who just like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how that one works. I feel like he just says, I have a book and it's like, cool. Have, yes, you have. <laughs> yes, I, I think, you do. I wonder, I wonder how many agents Stephen King has had over his whole career because he's had a huge long career. Has yeah. he had the same, has he had the same agent um, the whole time? I don't, I have a feeling he hasn't. Um, that would be really interesting to know the inside game, the inside baseball on that. Man, if he had the same agent that whole time, that agent's got to be like, this is my only client and I'm living right. it up. Like, right. I'm done. I'm saying. I feel like I feel like for all the big name authors, it's got to be like it's there's there's got to be such a level of like trust and trust and understanding there um, because they just like they have they have to know how to like sell whatever that like whatever that person comes out with. Like, I, I can't imagine that companies are willing to let a big name like like Stephen King or like James Patterson or you know when he was living Jean Le Carre. Um like I can't imagine agencies are willing to let one of those authors go to anybody else. Yeah. So I would assume I, at some point in that career it becomes <laughs> like big name author A is always with literary agent has an agreement with literary agent B to always publish with publisher C. And then it's just a streamline of whoever telling the public telling the agent i have this project and they're like hey he's got another book it'll he said it'll be ready in 2023 and they're like awesome we already have the presses set aside yeah. for whatever day that right. is like how would you like to be the guy who loses the agent who loses uh Stephen king or john updike or something like that john updike oh, wrote man. for the same publisher for his entire pretty much his entire career i think oh, alfred a cop Ouch. And, and how would you like to be the guy who fucked up? Or, sorry, I don't know if I'm about to no, swear. No, no, no. You, no, you swear away. You could swear, um, yeah. <laughs> who messed up and uh, lost that huge client who uh, had so much weight and power and everything. I'm really fascinated with literary agents. I don't know much about them. I don't know any age. I, I've never met an agent. But I have this real fascination. Is like Going back to what we first start, started talking about, that novel Goddard, I started thinking of this character and maybe it would be a character for a novel, a fictional character who is a literary agent for mm-hmm. novelists writing in indie lit or alt lit or people on Twitter, you know, and the way that they would kind of like manipulate <laughs> the literary agent would not be, a, it, would, it would be a, very bad portrait of a literary agent or a bad guy, you know? Yeah. Um, it might be kind of like scabbard. I mean, I can, I, I like the idea. I mean, the other thing, like there's, there's so much, there's so much fodder to kind of be like mind with, with that, because it's also like, I, I have a thing with like editors, like there, I don't know if you've ever heard of the movie. I think it's genius is what it's called but it was based on the relationship between Maxwell Perkins, who was a senior editor at Scribner's and and Tom Wolfe. And that, that relationship just completely fascinates me. 
uh, just because it's like like this one guy worked with Tom Wolf, Hemingway, F. Scott right. Fitzgerald. Right. I'm just kind of like, what kind of person handles that kind of literary talent? Right. Yeah. Right. Someone it, very strong, like someone who can speak to that voice. Right. Like. Oh yeah. Ridiculous. I think to an extent that kind of is what you need for those like bigger name people to just be like, you need someone with that level of respect and that level of control to be like, listen, just because you're a best-selling author doesn't mean you don't have 25 plot holes in this new manuscript yeah. copy. Like right, you need to right. maintain your standard. So yeah. I haven't like I've only really dealt with Gabriel Hart and then the other the mystery novel that I worked on, I showed it to a friend of mine who is not really an editor. It was more like a beta reader kind of situation. But she tore it apart. And it was so valuable, but I haven't looked at it since because it's so, it just, the manuscript just vibrates with like problems that she pointed out. Mm-hmm. And one of these days I will open it up again and look at it because she had no, she was ruthless, you know? And I think that's what you need. I think that's basically what you need, but, um, uh, it was harrowing, you know, because I realized I realized this is this is really bad, <laughs> you know. I mean, there's, yeah, there's yeah. the skeleton of something good in it, and I want to keep working on it. But she just had no patience for every little piece of dialogue, and like, who would talk like this? Nobody would say things like this. Um, yeah, it's all kinds of stuff like that. There's there's the willingness to be completely ruthless with yourself as well. That is yeah. a very yeah. underrated quality. Um, yeah. The the I love people who are completely ruthless with my work. God bless you, Kirsten. Um, but and every other person that's ever looked at my stuff um, because they 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 were relentless with it. They were just kind of like, this is bullshit. Like fix it. Um, right. But then at the same time when you know you could have done better and you have to go back and fix it. And it's just that soaked with red ink to the point where it looks like someone murdered someone on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of courage to go back to it and just be like, all right, cool. Like, like let's, let's dig back in and fix this because yeah. we, know, we know there's something good here. We just got to dig it out of the coal mine. Yeah, right. I always get so nervous when like, we have one of your pieces up for edit on this podcast. And it's someone that I haven't worked with before, like an editor I don't necessarily know. And then it's just all of my notes. And there's like two comments from somebody else. I'm like, <laughs> I'm really nice in person. <laughs> and it's, they, they get to know you. They get to know you eventually. Um, you. It's great. <laughs> in the poetry world or in the poetry experience that I've had, I've belonged to groups that of, like poetry workshops, poetry, again, no, nobody that you would maybe call like a formal editor, but there's a lot of like really just straight up, this is garbage, you know, or, or this is really bad. And one thing that comes up and it makes me bristle whenever I hear it, but I know there's a lot of truth to it. The whole thing about kill your darlings. Mm-hmm. Whenever I hear people say that, it just makes me, so not because I don't want to kill my darling, but I think that it's a it's a long pathway of self-realization and self 
purification or something like that to realize that you do need to do that, you know? And um, I have a feeling I have a long way to go with in many areas of life, but in one of them, I have a long, a long way to go with uh, forming uh, relationships with people to add a me. And um, that is something that I could really use a lot of help with, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I think it's maybe the only time I quote gospel here, but there's a section in, I think the gospel of John where Jesus talks about the pruning away of like dead branches from the vine so that mm. the vine may bear more fruit. That's how I see editing. Like it's legitimately right. just cutting away what doesn't work and then trying right. to make it some, trying to make it a little bit more alive. Um, and it's, it takes a lot of trust. Like it really, really does. There's a reason that, um, Kirsten's one of my main editors. It's because like I've known her for so long and I, I trust her opinion because she she knows what she's talking about. And she like the thing of it is like she also knows me, which mm-hmm. is both a pro and a con. And because we we know each other so well, we get where we get where the other one is going. Yeah. But we also know when to call each other out. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where like I think this was also an issue when we were looking at my book, was I told you so much about it that you knew what was going to happen. So like having it read by people who I never talked about the plot, I never talked about the summary. They were like, what? What? Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, this thing. And they're like, yeah, explain that now. Like, expl- explain it now. Yeah. Um, whereas with Nathan, I'm just like, oh, I know your voice. I know where you're going with this. I know this is going to make sense eventually. So I think sometimes it, it, like, it does take so much trust, but it's also like, I can't, only rely on him anymore and he can't only rely on me now because i know his voice almost too well right i see yeah yeah it's catch 22 yeah again uh, why we have this show (laughs) it's a it's a labor it's a labor of love and a way for us to get out of our own shells yeah and just like be exposed to different types of writing and different types of editing and like what other people think about Mm -hmm. all this stuff and Mm -hmm. talk about genre with other very talented writers so yeah was there anything else you want to talk about jesse nothing in depth or anything i just uh i write comics as well and i that's that's something that i i like doing but i also i have a kind of sore spot where i feel like it's not really legit or it's not really mature um i think if i were uh a painter as well as a writer, it would be different, but there's something about writing comics that's, it seems like um, not mature. And as someone who, every time that there's a new Goofy Gods comics and it's little Stickman Grim Reaper Hades with his fluffy three-headed Cerberus, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is adorable. Don't down yourself for comics. Like, please right. don't. That is some of my favorite, like, most beloved right. writing is comics. It's just like a whole new way of telling a story. Like, yeah. I understand that in the literary world, sometimes they are looked down upon, but like, it's just so silly. Like, please don't feel that way about it. I, I know that you will anyway, but like, please don't, because it's, I just, I love them so much. Just so, so much. Yeah. I think it, for me, it's just like, like I was talking about the cycle of 
novels, poems, and comics, like sometimes I'm not really in tune with one of them. So I'll kind of go to the other one to try to stay productive. Sometimes I'm not productive in any of them at all for a long time. Um, but it's sort of like just taking a break from one medium to go into another one. Um, I'm getting more acceptance in that world. I'm getting more acceptances as writing comics. Um, I suppose I would like to write a graphic novel one day. Uh, also, another another aspect of this three-prong thing that I'm doing is I'll be focusing on one of them and then I'll have like an acceptance in one of the other two. And it's a good like kind of motivational self-esteem boost to have forgotten about one of the mediums and then it kind of re-emerges re that somebody is interested in it. Um, I recommend it to people to try to find more than one thing to do. Um, uh, try to find more than one art form to um, participate in. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's all I'd say. Uh, it was I there there's I remember I remember something along the lines of there was another I think it was Flannery O'Connor who once said that she knew a lot of writers who also painted for like yeah. that kind of reason. Um and it is helpful. Um just because like it's it's another way to flex your creative muscle. Right. Everyone needs one of those. Um yeah. but thank you very much for coming on the show. We very much thank love you for having me. Yeah, this has, been, this has been very fun and very eye-opening and um, I look forward to listening to it later and cringing at my own comments <laughs> about things and uh, um, hopefully refining. Uh, it's helped me refine some of what I think I'm trying to do as a writer. I really, I think podcasting is so cool. Um, it's it's such a amazing other avenue of dealing with um, organizing the arts and, and everything else that podcasts uh, are used to organize. But I really appreciate that it exists in this, uh, in this world and in the world of dark fiction and what you're doing. Um, it's great and I'm very happy that I've been here. Thank you. Very happy to help promote you and shout your praises from the rooftops. Everyone, needs to buy the book um we'll link to your twitter in the show notes okay great in the meantime um everyone please don't forget to like comment subscribe please share this podcast with your friends if you have any work you want to share with us if you have work that you want to promote or work you want us to edit or if you want to join us as an editor please uh email us at darkwaterspodcast at gmail.com and in the meantime thank you again jesse for joining us and everyone please always remember to look beneath the surface thanks everyone Thanks, guys.